join me in turning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter number 3. 1 Peter, chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 18 and read together through chapter 4 and verse number 6. I would have liked to have been able to break these verses together, but I think in the case of this section, breaking them together will limit our ability to understand exactly what it is that Peter is communicating in these verses. If you are one of those who really enjoys kind of intense Bible study or passages that have a certain element of mystery, this is the passage for you. It has it all. We have angels and demons and heaven and hell and the resurrection of Jesus and the victory of believers and intrigue and mystery all packaged into a single section of 1 Peter. Some would suggest, and I think I might agree, that this is among the most interesting, fascinating, curious passages in the New Testament. But I want to caution you that as we look at some of the intricacies of interpretation here, that you are careful to observe, not to miss the primary purpose of Peter and what he's describing here in our passage. Namely, that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. By his death and resurrection has seized all authority in heaven and on earth and has passed the final sentence against every act of disobedience. First Peter chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 18. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of God's spirit, the Bible says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he's gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve, because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there's already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So they're surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God in the spiritual realm. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. 
The central message of these verses, Peter's primary purpose in stating what has been stated here is captured in verse number 18. The Bible says here, for Christ also suffered for sin. We've been called upon in a number of areas or aspects of our life, arenas of life, to suffer, even at times to suffer unjustly. But Peter points us here to the one who has suffered not just because of sin, but vicariously on our behalf has suffered in order that our sin might be carried away. Jesus has become our substitute in suffering for sin. It's impossible to overstate the nature of Jesus' suffering for our sin. The full weight of sin is borne by Christ on the cross. Jesus suffered for sins. There are three times described in the Bible when a full measure of God's wrath is poured out with great force. The first of those is mentioned in the very verses that we read in the days of Noah when God, for the disobedience of mankind, poured out his wrath in a flood of water, eradicating so much of mankind. But eight were saved on that ark Noah was instructed to construct. The Bible describes the last days as the days when the world is destroyed and evil is judged, disobedience is accounted for not by a flood of water, but by a flood of, of fire, fiery wrath from a vengeful God against the sins of mankind. And then at the apex of human history, at the crossroads, at the turning point, the hinge point of human history, at the cross itself where Jesus bore nails in his hands and feet, the full measure of God's wrath against our sin poured out on the body of Jesus. Jesus there drinks the bitter cup of God's wrath against us. Jesus suffered at the cross for your sins and my sins. The sins of every believer is atoned for, paid for. Jesus becomes our substitute. He takes our place in bearing the full force of God's wrath against our sin. Jesus isn't just bearing the consequence of the sin of an unjust system in the Roman authorities. Or, or the consequence of the accusation of unjust people as the Jewish establishment accused him of blasphemy. Jesus is coming under the full force of God's wrath against our sin. Indeed, in every conceivable way, Christ suffered for sins. Peter continues, Christ also suffered for sins once for all. John reminds us in 1 John 2 and verse 2 that Jesus died not for our sins only, but for the sins of the world. He becomes the propitiation for the sins of the world. Jesus has taken the place of every believer, past and present and future. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to atone for the full measure of sin for every soul who would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. His all-sufficient sacrifice forever and final once and for all Christ also suffered for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous when it comes to the matter of someone becoming a substitute for us in coming under the wrath of God there is but one viable candidate the job itself requires one like unto us, meaning 
he must have been a man. Yet the job requires one who is himself free from all unrighteousness. Otherwise, the penalty for sin would be his own. There'd be no substitute in that he'd pay the rightful price for his own sin. The position itself, the job, the responsibility requires a sinless man, and there is but one who fits the bill. The righteous is given over in the place of the unrighteous. It is that Jesus pays the full penalty for our sin, carrying our sin away at the cross. And in exchange for bearing our unrighteousness in his body, he gives by faith the full measure of his righteousness to all who would believe on him. Jesus is covered in our sin at the cross. And by faith in Jesus, we are covered in his perfect righteousness. Christ also suffered for sins once and for all the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. The function, the purpose of the cross is that you and I might come to God. The goal of Jesus' life, his agenda in this world, was to seek and to save the lost. To reconcile a broken people, a sinful people, separated and cast away from God. That we might come into fellowship with a perfectly righteous God, even as an altogether unrighteous people. That is the purpose of the cross, that he might bring you to God. You might come to the Father not by works of righteousness that you have done, not by, not by religious fervor or even the sincerity of your heart. You don't even get to come because you want to come. You can only come to God through the cross of Calvary. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. But Peter states what he states in verse 18, not only to capture the message of the gospel in a few succinct lines, but to point us to the notion that Jesus is not only our substitutionary sacrifice at the cross, he sets the pattern for our life, provides for us a model that we are to image after in our own life experiences. Peter's going to remind us that Jesus' willful submission to unjust systems and unjust authorities and unjust people were his means to victory, calling us again away from worldly weapons of warfare to embrace the way of the cross. If I could put it this way, Peter is describing for us the strategy of suffering for the advancement of the kingdom. Not one concocted in Peter's imagination or even in our pragmatic ideas as we search out what works best for us, but a strategy for kingdom advancement bound up in the very experience of Jesus. Jesus would willfully submit himself to unjust systems, authorities, and people. And by virtue of his willful submission, his suffering even unto death, God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. 
that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that indeed Jesus Christ is Lord. The passage serves as an invitation to suffering Christians to heed the example of Jesus. When enticed to take the circumstances of your life into your own hands, the invitation is to pattern after Christ, to entrust your well-being, not to your influence, not to your personal power or your strength, but to the good providence of a God who has loved us so much that he's given forth his only son that we could have everlasting life. This is Peter's purpose, the strategy of suffering. Peter continues in verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. Jesus dies in the flesh, but immediately enjoys authority in the spiritual realm. Now, one of the things that Peter is pushing back on, we're going to see this in a more personal way, not so much as it relates to Jesus, but as it relates to us personally later in chapter 4. He's pushing back against this idea in the first century and especially within the region, it seems, that he's preaching to here in 1 Peter 3 and 4, that our earthly life is disconnected from our spiritual life after death. Understand that the message of the gospel was not an introduction to the notion of life after death. We spoke to that in the past. What the gospel introduces into Roman and Greco-Roman culture is life after life after death, namely the resurrection that every Roman citizen would, believe in, would have believed in some manner of life after death. They just didn't believe that there were direct lines of connection between the life we live on earth and the life we would live in the spiritual realm. The mantra of the day was, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's squeeze every ounce of sensual pleasure we can out of life in the here and now, because once this life is gone, we're going to live a fundamentally different kind of life in the spiritual realm that may not result so much from the experiences that we have here. And the idea that Peter is firmly establishing is that your life in the spiritual realm, specifically your life after death, is directly connected to consequences born forth from your earthly life. For the believer, your hope in the spiritual life is entirely bound up in the embrace of the gospel during the course of your earthly life. Those two are inseparably bound together. Jesus was put to death in the flesh and the product of that earthly death was an immeasurable authority enjoyed in the spiritual realm. And Peter will go on to point out it's an authority he bears in the earthly realm as well. The earthly death of Jesus means not only does he bear all authority in heaven, furthermore, he bears all authority on earth. Peter is coupling together the experiences of our earthly life and what was understood in that first century context as the spiritual life to come after. Now look at verse 19. In that state, which is to say in that spiritual state or in the spiritual realm, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison 
who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Now this is where the questions begin to arise. Specifically of verse number 19, who are these spirits and what is this prison? Peter helps us a bit here with identifying the spirits. They were spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Now what Peter is referencing here is an understanding of Genesis chapter 6 that was incredibly popular in the first century. In fact, it's written down and it's shared and virtually everyone would have been aware of this tradition of understanding Genesis 6 in a specific way. And Genesis 6 is a strange passage of scripture. The Bible says there that in those days, the sons of God looked lustfully upon the daughters of men and lay with them. And then it follows abruptly with this reference to the Nephilim or the giants who roamed the earth in those days, those men of fame or those men of renown. Now, I will confess this morning, I'm not entirely sure what in the world is going on in Genesis chapter 6. But the way of understanding that, the, the, the acceptable way of understanding that for Peter's congregation was that Genesis 6 somehow represents fallen angels or demons who look lustfully upon the daughters of men, lay with them, and from that union come the giants or the Nephilim. Now, I'm not telling you that that's what Peter is saying. I'm just saying to you, Peter is interacting with what is already present in the minds of those who are listening. And Peter is saying those fallen angels, those demons, those disobedient ones imprisoned, Jesus has visited and made a proclamation in the spiritual realm. After his resurrection, Jesus makes some declaration to those imprisoned spirits. Now, there is in this period in the first century and in some locations a little different understanding of the makeup of the world than what you and I might have today. If we just pulled a child from within our congregation and said, can you tell us where heaven is? They would probably point up. And if you ask of them, can you tell us where hell is? They would probably point down. And most of that, for the, I think for the most part in our culture anyway, that is derived from our understanding of the Old Testament's description of the makeup of the cosmos. There is a reference to Sheol or the grave, and that operates synonymously to hell or to Hades in the Old Testament. But that's not always the case in the Bible. In fact, there is a multi-tiered way of understanding the makeup of the world that's reflected in a variety of places, even in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, for instance, speaks in the third person of knowing a man who went to the third heaven. There is at minimum a three-tiered understanding of the makeup of the world around us. There is the first heaven, which is the sky, the atmosphere as we observe it on a regular basis. There is the second heaven, which is the abode of the sun and the moon and the stars. And there is the third heaven, which is the home of our God. But within this multi-tiered system, there is furthermore understood at certain intervals of time within the biblical time frame that there are certain places or prisons where spirits or fallen people, disobedient people, are imprisoned until the final day of judgment. Now, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter whether you understand heaven or hell to be up, down, left, right, east, west, east, west north, or south. 
At the end of the day, heaven is where Jesus is and hell is where Jesus is not. When all is said and done, I want to be where Jesus is. I do not want to be where Jesus is not. But as it relates to our passage, here is the picture that Peter is painting. Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. He is our substitute there. His lifeless body is tucked away in a borrowed grave, and the mouth of that grave is covered with a great stone. But on the third day, the once lifeless body of Jesus begins to breathe again. He meets with his disciples, even enjoying breakfast by the Sea of Galilee. He charges them in Acts chapter 1 that as the Spirit empowers them, they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Acts 1 paints the picture of those disciples standing there, gawking into the sky with amazement as Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. And what Peter wants us to see here is that just beyond the view of those disciples, just beyond his view in Acts chapter 1, just before the coming of the Holy Spirit, what they could just barely not see was Jesus passing through the prison and making a final declaration of God's judgment against all who had disobeyed the command of our God. Immediately, instantly, the spiritual authority of Jesus exercised even as he ascends to the right hand of God. Now, what about this proclamation? What is the nature of the proclamation? I've, I've indicated already the nature of the proclamation, but it, it deserves a little support. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits. This is not Jesus stopping by the prison and offering grace and salvation to those fallen angels. If for no other reason we can exclude that as an option because Peter has said of the salvation we enjoy in Jesus that angels desire to look into such things. In other words, the full and free grace of God afforded us through Jesus is an offer of salvation unique to mankind. Not even angels are afforded the great privilege of taking shelter under the blood of the Lamb of God. Salvation is unique to mankind. The apex of God's creative work. He has afforded us by the blood of Jesus salvation full and free. But that offer is unique to you and me. Not even the angels are given such an opportunity. This is not Jesus passing through a prison of fallen angels and offering them a way of escape. This is Jesus passing by and noting, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And your destiny is a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. This is Jesus making a final declaration. The verdict has been passed and the sentence has been set. Your destiny is bound up in punishment. The Spirit's imprisoned. Now, look at verse 20. These in the past when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are those that would take verse 21 specifically and seek to shoehorn that in such a way as to make it say that baptism is the mechanism by which we're saved. 
In other words, they would say that, that baptism operates or works to save you from your sin. But Peter could not possibly be any clearer. You even have this parenthesis, this parenthetical statement in our passage where Peter notes that baptism is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge or the answer or the decision of a good conscience toward God. The outward expression of our internal faith in Jesus, what God has done invisibly in us, we attest to, we proclaim, we testify to, we depict symbolically in the act of baptism publicly. We're acting out before the body, before the public, what God has done in us. That's the function of believer's baptism. What Peter is saying here is that our experiences in baptism have some correspondence to the experience of Noah and his family during the time of the flood. In the same way that Noah and those seven members of his family took their shelter in the ark against the flood of God's wrath. So we now take our shelter, we find our refuge, our safe space, our hiding place is not in a boat, but in the body of Jesus Christ. Our experiences now have correspondence to that of Noah. Just as he was delivered in the ark, so we are delivered in Christ. Just as a flood of water surrounded the ark, so we are washed over in a flood of baptism finding our hiding place in the body and blood of Jesus. Verse 22 says, now that he's gone into heaven, he's at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Jesus bears all authority in heaven and on earth. Peter is pressing here, there is no realm, there is no crack or crevice of creation there is no distant realm. There is no dimension over which Jesus does not bear full authority. And his resting authority in every realm of life is the direct result of his obedience even unto death in his earthly life and ministry. And the invitation goes like this. If you are to enjoin yourselves to the victory Jesus has achieved and secured, if you're going to enjoy the full benefits of Jesus' lordship over every realm and dimension, you're going to need to embrace this strategy of suffering with your earthly life and be reminded on a constant basis that your earthly life will bear itself out with this great victory enjoyed in the spiritual life that awaits us in Jesus. No great disconnect. In fact, they're bound up together. In, in other words, what happens to you after death will be the direct consequence of what has happened to you in this life. You will either have embraced the message of the gospel for your eternal salvation, or you will have rejected the message of the gospel to your eternal damnation. One of those two realities will be observed in you. But you needn't think or expect or have even an inkling of hope that somehow or some way, your sins in the present life might be absolved for in the life to come apart from Jesus. 
nor should you think that there's some additional or new measure of grace that awaits you at the moment of your death. There is a direct line of connection that exists between the way we walk in this life and the life we live in the spiritual realm to come. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, Peter says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve. Because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin in order to live, in the, remain, to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what pagans choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. Peter turns this a bit. He, he turns the focus of Jesus' suffering just a tad away from the suffering that we might experience by virtue of external variables, the things that might happen to us. Things that might result from unjust systems and unjust people and unjust authorities. To now the internal strugglings we experience on a continual basis against the desires of the flesh. Peter says Jesus suffered for sin. Therefore willingly bear with suffering that may come from sinful people. But don't neglect to wrestle against the sin that's born forth from the wickedness of your own heart. Don't forget to fight against the flesh. Don't forget to make war against your sin. Don't yield to the temptations of the flesh, but make war against the sin for which Christ died. We ought not to trifle with or be entertained by or toy around with the sins for which Christ died. If you, if you really want to, to guard yourself against legalism, the notion of doing things in order to win the favor of God, arm yourselves with, with motivation in the suffering of Jesus for sin, how it must grieve the heart of God that we would toy with the very things for which his only son died. Here, we're warned against these behaviors customary among the pagans. And Peter says we've spent enough time fooling around with the kind of things that pagans choose to do. Now look to verse 4. Peter says, they're surprised that you don't plunge with them in the same flood of dissipation or wild living and they slander you. They don't get it. They don't understand why you Christian people live the way that you live. Why you do the things that you do. Now, I, listen, I live in preacher world and, and I can just say in a room full of people, I'm a pastor and everybody acts differently for the most part. But you live in the real world without the kind of insulation afforded to the office of pastor at times. And you've experienced this. You go into a setting, you walk into a room, and at some point along the way, you're invited to some level of participation in what's unfolding around you. And, and to express conviction, perhaps, about a certain activity or behavior, and to withdraw on some level, it's looked at in kind of a strange way. Remember again, the mantra of the day is eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. This earthly life is disconnected from the life that we will live in the sweet by and by, at least in the mind of Peter's congregation. 
And I got news for you. They may sound strange and foreign, but it is the mantra of our day as well. And there is this sort of universalistic assumption that all dogs go to heaven and we do too, regardless of what unfolds in our life in the here and now. And again, Peter is drawing direct connections between our earthly life and the spiritual experience that awaits us at the conclusion of this earthly, fleshly experience. They don't get it. So rather than seeking to understand in a deeper or meaningful way why you bear the values or hold the convictions you hold, they slander you because this is what we do. Unless we wag our fingers in judgment, we ought to be reminded that we are inclined to do the same. We slander what we don't understand. It would behoove us to seek to understand those things we don't understand before we take to slandering those things we don't understand. But you should have no expectation that you're going to be the recipient of the same favor. They don't get why you act the way you do. They don't get why you do what you do. And so they slander you. Look at verse 5. They'll give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason... The gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God in the spiritual realm. Now, this is perhaps the part of our passage that is most, most often misunderstood. What Peter is not describing is the scenario in which someone goes to those dead and preaches to them the gospel in the hopes that they might be saved. Listen to me. It has been appointed unto man once to die, and then there is the judgment. There is no recourse for you. There is no U-turn spot. There are no roundabouts or second opportunities. When you have breathed your last breath, your spiritual condition is locked in for an eternity. Your condition will be the direct result of either having embraced the message of the gospel for your eternal salvation or having rejected the message of the gospel for your eternal damnation, but your condition will be one of the two and it will be at that point irreversible eternally. You will be what you are at that given moment. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. There is no future opportunity afforded for you. And even in conservative circles, there seem to be great pains taken among Christians to concoct or create in our imagination this opportunity somehow at the end of days or the end of life that we might rectify a lifelong disaster. That is, that is not to say that there can't be an 11th hour salvation experience. I rejoice in that and the experience of the thief on the cross. Is there a better illustration of the full and free grace of God than the thief's experience? No baptism, no church membership, never been to master life, never been to a small group, never attended a church service, and yet Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. But his place in paradise was secured by a conscious awareness and conviction in the lordship of Jesus on this side of his death. On the other side, there are no opportunities. Hear what the Bible says is describing again in verse six, is a scenario in which those who heard the gospel in the past and believed, though now dead, have taken a place of life and goodness and gladness in the spiritual life to come. Listen again to verse six, this time with a little commentary. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those 
who are now dead. In the past, the message of the gospel was preached and some believed. In the past, the message of the gospel was preached to masses of people and they believed the message of the gospel. And if I could go further and reading into what Peter is saying here, I think with no violence whatsoever to what Peter intends, I would note that in the past, the gospel has been preached and some believed and some followed after the example of Jesus holding fast to their confession of his lordship even unto death. In the past, some believed the message of the gospel and they were saved by the power of the gospel. And they lived out the gospel. And because of living out the gospel, they were slandered by men. They were judged by the people of this earth. But upon their death, they entered into life in the spiritual realm. That's what Peter's describing. Listen again. For this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are now dead. So that although they might be judged by men, although they might have been slandered, although they might have been maligned, although they may have lived on the margins of society for their faith in Jesus Christ in the fleshly realm, now they live by God in the spiritual realm. What Peter is saying is that no man ever lays down his earthly life for the cause of Jesus, only to regret it in the life to come. No man, no man. If we would read the circumstances of Peter's life and in the very passage that we've just been reading, you think Peter's in heaven wringing his hands over what he might have missed in his earthly life? Peter, after finally getting his act together and conviction finally taking hold in his heart, restored to Jesus in John 21, if you love me, feed my sheep. Peter would spend the rest of his life feeding the sheep of God. Church history tells us that Peter died crucified upside down after the manner of Jesus, a martyr in 64, 65 AD. You think think Peter's up there fretting over what he missed out on in this life? You think Peter's up there thinking, you know, back in John 4 when the Sanhedrin arrested us, we should have filed a class action lawsuit. That's what we should have done, John. Rather, in heaven, rejoicing that he'd been counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. This is about the strategy of suffering. And the reason so often, especially in the Western church, we have this continual experience of powerlessness is because we have opted for a strategy that centers on weapons of worldly warfare rather than taking the only weapon that has ever been effective for the advancement of the kingdom, a full-hearted and bold confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and will live with the consequences of that statement. Peter describes here a strategy of suffering, not one concocted in the upper room as the disciples met together and imagined what might be best for the church, but one that is born directly forth from the very salvation work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring you to God. The invitation of the gospel is that we would embrace the same experience, the same destiny, the same way of life, 
that we would be willing to suffer for sins, no, not vicariously as Jesus did, but on behalf of others, because we esteem others more highly than ourselves, and we're willing to see the kingdom go forward, even at the detriment of our own agendas, our own personal kingdoms. Humble yourself and embrace the strategy of suffering. And only God in heaven knows how he might be pleased to work through that. Die to yourself and live in Christ Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the privilege that has been ours in giving consideration to these few verses. I pray, Lord, that in spite of elements of mystery that exist about these verses, that the basic principles of this passage resonate well with your people and that you would allow that they would land with weight in the hearts of those who are gathered here. Save the lost. Renew, revive, and encourage the church. Advance your kingdom. Increase as we decrease. In Jesus' name, amen.